today on Ag News Daily. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, Mike. How about you? Not too bad. I tell you what, it is still a chilly day here, uh, well, pretty well across the entire Midwest. Was checking in with a couple grower listers, friends of the podcast around the country, and I tell you what, these rainfall events that happened late last week, over the weekend, and I guess a little bit continued yesterday, mm-hmm. apparently up around Angie Setzer, our Market Monday guest for yesterday, they are getting hammered with rain again throughout Michigan. Boy, it's, it's going to be... It's kind of a wait and see for a lot of folks to see how much of this water actually drains off these fields in areas that were flooded with three, four, five inches of rain. Yeah, absolutely. Ashton, how is it looking down there in your neck of the woods in Texas? Are a lot of people done planting? I know it's a big cotton area down there. Are things dry down there or wet? It's been okay, actually. We've had a couple of thunderstorms roll through over the past week or so, but nothing too bad, nothing that we can't handle out here in Lubbock. In fact, in the cotton belt, we've had below normal rainfall and above normal temperatures, which I guess is all right because here in Texas, we've had a 46% cotton crop planted in 2020 versus a 33% in 2019. In fact, on a national level, the crop is 44% planted compared to 2019's cotton crop at 39%. So I would say that we're doing pretty good down here. So things are getting planted down there in Texas is what it sounds like. And since we're talking crop progress numbers, I'm just going to pull out these numbers as well for the rest of the Corn Belt and parts of Texas as well, plant corn and soybeans as well. But we are 80% planted, or I'm sorry, we have 80% of the corn crop that still needs to be planted in North Dakota. I was watching this on Twitter yesterday. Naomi Bloom was tweeting about this. 80% of their corn crop in North Dakota still needs to be planted, and they only have about seven days until their insurance date kicks in. Yeah, it is. It is wet. You know, it's interesting, Delaney. You know, I mean, it kind of sounds like it almost kind of caught you there. North Dakota has 80% less to plant. Nationwide, we are 80% planted. I mean, their delays are compounding. And as we talked about uh, last week, with Jason Hansen, you know, the much shorter growing season that North Dakota has anyway is being shortened up again this year after a challenging last year. Um, there are some wonderings. I believe they've still got 11% of 2019 crops standing in fields in North Dakota. The question is, okay, what is USDA going to do with those? It's not huge acreage, but again, when we're looking at big crops, you know, it, how do we take those into account? They've been considered stored on the farm. But at this point, you know, standability is a real concern. Eardropping is a real concern. The ongoing wetness, you know, the ability to actually get that crop harvested at some point is becoming a real issue. Not to mention, you know, there's 3.8, 3.5 million acres of corn expected to go in the ground in North Dakota. And as you mentioned, only 20% of it is in. And of that 20%, you know, a lot of it has seen lots of water mm-hmm. already. Yeah. Yep. So you're right there. 80% of our corn crop is planted. When you look at soybeans, we are at about 53% planted, which is well ahead of our five-year average. Usually for this time of year, we're only at about 38% planted. So we're seeing that crop go in pretty much everywhere else besides North Dakota on corn and soybean side of things. 
Yeah, and it's worth noting that even though corn planting continues to run ahead of uh, five-year average and certainly well ahead of last year's pace, it actually came in a little bit slower than the trade was guessing. Not significantly. The trade was estimating corn planting to be at 81%, came in at 80 um, That was actually, you know, mildly very, very mildly supportive corn prices. Um, but, you know, yeah, we're, we're still continuing to struggle to get things finished. And Delaney, I've got an update actually taking things over to China. This was a story that broke yesterday that I meant to talk about. I had it pulled up and then completely forgot about it. Uh, this is coming out of China. Their New Hope, the New Hope Group, which is one of China's biggest hog breeders, announced yesterday they expect Chinese hog herd output to recover from the 2019 African swine fever outbreak by 2021. And they expect after that, once those those hogs uh, start to get into the pipeline, they anticipate prices are going to fall fairly considerably after a rush of new entrants into the pig industry come online. So they do anticipate that that huge price spike we've seen for retail pork prices in China that's now been going on over a year um, is going to come to an end by the end of 2020, early 2021, and then we could see a collapse in pork prices. So, you know, we continue to see China make purchases of U.S. pork. The indication to me is that we shouldn't perhaps count on China to be a long-term pork buyer. 2020 might just be a surge in exports from U.S. pork into that country to kind of fill this hole before they come online. And that is, of course, taking a a Chinese company at their word when they issue these Mm -hmm. public sentiments, which, you know, I don't I don't know much about New Hope Group. I have no idea how reputable they are. They're one of the biggest there. So I imagine they know what they're talking about. But, you know, it's China. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take things back here domestically because we have some really, really big news that I'm going to try and unpack as eloquently as I possibly can. But we have news today about the new CFAP or the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, which is essentially like MFP uh, we're just looking, we're just calling it something different this year. So, again, that fund is about $16 billion to cover coronavirus relief payments. USDA has issued some guidelines and background today about how this is going to work. little confusing in my opinion, but essentially they're going to give about 80% of this CFAP payment to farmers now up front beginning May 26th is when enrollment will begin, so just next week. So 80% of those funds will go to farmers now. Their remaining 20% is going to be held at a later date if funds remain available, is what the USDA is saying. We're also seeing that the USDA's final rule eases payments, eases the payment limit, and it will cap these payments at $250,000 per individual recipient, and so then the other piece of this that I think is a little different is the amount of money that they're giving to each specific commodity. So barley, canola, corn, cotton, millet, oats, sorghum, soybeans, sunflowers, wheat, and hard red wheat all are receiving a payment rate. It's very similar to the first round of second round. I'm trying to think now. Which one was it where they gave us 35 cents per corn? I think that was the second payment round, wasn't the second, it? First, sound, yeah. first round was a penny. Okay, so so yes, it's very much structured like the second part of MFP2. So if you think about what you got as part of that rate, corn for this new package is at 32 cents. 
Sorghum is at 30 cents. Soybeans are at 45 cents per bushel. So they're structuring it in that way pretty similarly. But here's However, the part. Oh, go ahead. I'm well, I was just going to say, here's the part that's so, right. Yeah. Here's the part that's confusing or that I think doesn't really lend itself to being like an easy, here's your payment process. They're basing the amount of money you get on either your 2019 production for the commodity that suffered a 5% or greater price decline or your total 2019 production that was not sold as of January 15th of 2020. Just a quick clarification, Delaney, it's half of your 2019 production of those yes. specific commodities or Sorry, yes. all of the supplies you had on hand. So the way I interpret this, and, and again, folks, this is a great question for your FSA office. We are merely repeating what is reported in the news. So check with somebody who knows. These numbers just came out about an hour and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So we haven't been able to dig into the, the mechanics of it too closely. But the way I understand this program to work is, let's say you can take half of your production. If you were pretty aggressive fall marketing, you sold a lot of, of corn and soybeans, say, right off the combine. So you don't have a whole lot of storage on hand. Well, you still get to kind of dip your beak in this money by claiming half of your total production of both those commodities here in the, the Northern Corn Belt. If, however, you didn't market anything all fall, and then you watched as prices collapsed here throughout the spring, you get to take the entire amount you have on storage, both on-farm storage and paid commercial storage, and you get to collect your 32 cents for corn and 45 cents for soybeans on those commodities. So definitely, it's going to require a little bit of pencil pushing to figure out which way you want to go to apply for this money and definitely figure out that we are interpreting this correctly for your operation mm -hmm. with your FSA officer. Yeah. And so again, this has just come out this morning. They are putting out additional information and application forms. If you go to farmers.gov slash CFAP, or you can also check out more information at farmers.gov slash coronavirus. So USDA centers are open and up for business. You can call your local FSA office. They should have some more information. I'm not going to guess that they have more information as of today, but they should soon have more information. And we're going to try and work to find some people who can discuss how this new structure works with us. We're going to do our digging, put our ear to the, ear to the ground and uh, really figure this thing out. Yeah, and they also issued guidance for how livestock producers will be paid, and I am still muddling through it. I, I don't want to report it as of yet. I've just literally here about 30 minutes ago found the numbers, and they're not from the government, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to get them from a reputable source. So Delaney, unless you have the livestock information, I don't. I'm not going to read it. Yeah, nope. I think um, I don't have that in front of me, but I do have this other livestock-related news uh, that President Trump has announced. He said that the United States should look into ending trade deal provisions that allow for imports of live cattle into our country. He made these comments last week at the, or excuse me, he made those comments today during the CFAP rollout at the White House. And he says, I'm not really sure where he, where this fits into the CFAP program or why this got announced with the CFAP program, but he said, I read yesterday where we take some cattle in from other countries because we have trade deals. I think you should look at terminating those deals. 
And he apparently said this looking directly at Secretary Perdue. He said, we have trade deals where we actually take in cattle and we have a lot of cattle in this country. And I think you should look at the possibility of terminating those trade deals. So, well, President Trump, you, know, you did. It's called NAFTA. You ended it. You replaced right. it with the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Canada, Mexico, you know, USMCA. And you signed it. So, I mean, we can't change that. The, well, really, you know, the only importation of live animals comes from both Mexico and Canada. It isn't cost effective to ship live animals in from anywhere else. I, I don't know what Pelly's talking about. Yeah, I don't know either. And to be quite honest, maybe he doesn't. But my yeah, thought I think was that's probably a pretty fair guess. <laughs> well, my thought is reading into this just a little bit more. Maybe this was his way to kind of extend an olive branch to the cattle industry because he's kind of take them, not him directly, but just you know, agriculture in general is very upset about the way that the cattle markets have been handled as of late. So maybe this was his way at kind of trying to patch that over. I guess I'm guessing a news report crossed his desk about, you know, live cattle importation from Canada, which is really where most and listeners, correct me if I'm wrong. I know we've got a lot of folks who are active in the meat trade who tune into this podcast. My understanding is really most live animal importations come as feeder cattle imports from Canada. Um, and we do import perhaps some, some live bat cattle from Mexico for slaughter in this country for lean ground trimmings. But I, I think out of Mexico, most of what we're importing is lean ground trimming mm-hmm. cattle that have already moved to the big ranch in the sky. Um, you know, I'm guessing something crossed his desk. He said, he said, we should be doing that. It's like, well, you know, you kind of missed your chance to address that when we renegotiated USMCA. And those would have been huge sticking points, particularly with the Canadians because their cattle industry is for better or worse, and there can absolutely be a discussion about it, it's intertwined with the U.S. cattle industry because both countries produce a very high-quality, high-prime, high-choice beef product that both consumers love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in that. Nothing is going to come from Okay, that noted. There is, is my guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I could absolutely be wrong. Well, we've got legal action. While we're talking about beef production or protein production, I should say, in foreign countries, JBS down in Brazil is having more trouble. Uh, basically, there was a plant down in Santa Santa Catarina, uh, one of the states of Brazil, a poultry processing plant. Remember, JBS, especially in Brazil, processes everything. They are the world's largest meat packer and a huge player here in this country. This poultry plant was shut down by local labor authorities after there were concerns that it could be a hot spot, just like in this country, for the spread of COVID-19. Um, this plant in particular employs more than 1,400 people and processes 135,000 chickens per day, and the authorities ordered it closed. Well, JBS has decided to take these local labor authorities, and I'm not entirely sure what that function looks like down in Brazil, a labor authority, but they're taking them to court in an effort to reopen the plant. It sounds like this is sort of the Brazil meat industry's uh, Elon Musk moment, where they're saying, you can't shut us down, by golly, we're going to keep going. And uh, it was closed yesterday. Today, they filed suit, and now we're just kind of waiting on a judge to rule. Um and that's kind of what's going on. Again, we continue to see this COVID be a huge thorn in the side for meat packers in Brazil as well as the virus continues to spread down there. All right. Well, one other piece of news I have for today is looking at U.S. and U.K. trade negotiations. We saw hundreds of U.S. and U.K. negotiators wrap up their first round of trade talks as of Friday, and it seems 
we're going to see a pretty accelerated effort here to get a free trade deal wrapped up pretty quickly as they've already agreed to meet again on June 15th. Agriculture will be a part of this trade deal, and we're not sure exactly what that's going to look like yet, but the U.S. is uh, definitely hoping, I think, to get some U.S. beef into the British market. Absolutely. You know, it's it's impressive to me, Delaney, how quickly the Brits have been moving mm-hmm. on me these too. free trade agreements. You know, I think, you know, I'd initially was pretty pessimistic about this thing getting to a signing date anytime soon, but they're really pushing ahead pretty quick. They certainly are. It makes me wonder uh, what else is going on behind closed doors? I Yeah, I think this COVID thing has everybody scared, especially an island nation that has now kind of renounced its former trade partners. They want to guarantee their food supply. So I'm guessing they're going to be a little bit more willing to uh, make deals. Mm, I suppose so. Well, I tell you what, speaking of the food supply in this country, it is vast and it is safe. That's for sure. And today, prices were mixed. What do you say, Delaney? Should we jump into the markets? Let's do it. All right, folks, taking a look at corn right off the bat, it was higher on the day. The July contract was up half a cent at 321 and a quarter. December new crop up one and a half, finished at 334 and a quarter. Ju- uh, soybeans, I should say, July contract down two and a half cents at 842 and a half. November new crop down two and a half as well to finish at 850 and a quarter. Chicago wheat actually finding some green on the screen, bouncing off some of those mid-March lows. The July contract was up one and three quarters at 498 and three quarters. The December up three quarters of a cent to finish at 510 and a half. Looking over at livestock, we saw really both sides of unchanged today. The cattle market did finish higher on the fat side, lower on feeders, and hogs were down on the day. In June, live cattle, they were up a nickel at 98.7750. The August contract up 22.5 cents to close at 99.7, excuse me, 07.5. Feeder cattle, August contract down 62.5 cents at 131.92.5. September down 42.5 to finish at 133.32.5. Over in lean hogs, the June contract down a buck at fifty six sixty five. July down a dollar thirty seven fifty at fifty six twenty seven and a half. Yesterday we saw the dairy market kind of correct a little bit from last week's rally, and today it is back to the moon. Class three milk May contract up three cents at twelve twenty seven. The June up sixty seven cents, close today at seventeen thirty three. We have seen almost a five dollar rally in that contract, almost unabated. In the past, oh gosh, 14 trading days. Unbelievable rally in milk. With that, Delaney Howley is Tech Tuesday. Why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's interview? Absolutely. Well, I had the chance to chat with a gentleman from a company called AgTegra. It's located up in the Dakotas area. John Musk is who I'll be chatting with today to talk a little bit more about what he's seeing up in that area, as well as some new precision ag and other technology that's coming out for the ag industry. Well, for today's Hashtag Tech Tuesday interview, I'm chatting with John Muskie, Business Alignment Manager of AgTegra. John, thank you so much for joining today. Tell us, 10,000-foot view, what is AgTegra? Well, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate the invite. 10,000-foot um, view of AgTegra is really a farmer-owned large cooperative here. Its footprint would be South Dakota, North Dakota, really focused on helping our growers succeed and having assets that, that help them do that. So everything from grain, agronomy, feed, energy, um, everything that we do for farms is, is, is focused on our member owners. And when you say cooperative makeup, I'm thinking 
you know, of cooperatives that we see across the grain sector where farmers are paying in, you know, a, a stock essentially or buying ownership in the company. How does it work when you guys do so many different things like Agtegra does? Um, we're owned, we're owned by the people that we do business with and, uh, for them, they're, they're investing locally, um, as a locally owned co-op here in, in, in South Dakota, North Dakota, and a little bit of Northern Nebraska, where we, where we touch a little bit of Western Minnesota. And, uh, when they do business with us, they're, they're placing money into their assets. And when we get a return, they get a return. And, and that's, that's really the whole goal. You know, I think, uh, as a co-op, you know, we, our revenue streams and, where we pay stuff back really only goes three ways. We, we pay it back in cash patronage. We pay it back in equity and we return it in the assets that we build to help the farm today and future generations of that farm that are, that are coming up as well. So it's, it's, it's a unique, unique business when you're a part of it. It's, it's, it's a good feeling that you're really helping, helping farms and helping people that you do business with. And I, I guess that's what I enjoy about it. Absolutely. And it's just so neat that you guys have your fingers in kind of so many different areas of agriculture. You look at your website and you're doing grain and agronomic inputs and helping with that type of thing. You're helping with ag technology, energy, feed, retail. When you look at your title, business alignment manager, how are you combining all of those different areas or sectors that you're working in for the farmers that you work with? I, I guess for me, it's it's the unique unique title, a unique experience. To me, and our approach is every farm is custom. Every farm has different goals, um, and they need to be managed differently. Just like you might manage inputs differently in a field for for a yield goal or what you're looking at for an economic return, um, we want to do the same thing on on some of our farms. And we don't do these things the same way we did them last year, and we probably don't do them the same way we did them ten years ago. And that's the cool thing about agriculture. We got to evolve and we got to bring new ideas and we got to figure out better ways to do things and better ways to get a better return. And, and, you know, the good agronomics and good economics make sense. And that's a large part of my role in how I'm helping farms with Agtegra today. And, John, it sounds just very evident that you're passionate about agriculture and the farmers you're helping. Share with us a little bit more about your background and how you got into this current role. Yeah, so my background is um, I've worked in egg retail here for for 10 years really my whole career um i used to work for for a large innovative farm where i just helped out with you know about 5500 acres of row crop and they also had about a thousand mother cows that we we capped out every year so um that was just a unique experience for me with a really really good family that i'm close with and was able to learn a lot about both sides of it so understand challenges for a farm and opportunities for a farm and the same for a cooperative or same for an egg retail business and i feel like that's a good combination of experience that keeps me relevant in today's agriculture and really helps me help my customers and understand both sides of it so to me that's that, that's very important and as you look at understanding the current climate we're in, 2019 was a really rough year for a lot of farmers. We're heading into 2020 now as folks are getting out into the field and getting planted. How did you work with farmers this year after such an interesting year in 2019? What changed for a lot of farmers or what changed when you were planning things? It really depends on the geography right now in North Dakota, South Dakota. Um, we have areas that probably see a little bit more prevent plant here in 20 even 
And um, it's really just about focusing on what you can control and um, being able to lock in inputs and lock in profit when you can do it and really understanding all the different aspects of it. And, and I, I guess, you know, we can only can control what we can control and markets, weather, economics, stuff like that. We need to make the best decisions with the information in front of us. And at the end of the day, we're, we're all consumers and being able to filter and funnel more decisions to be able to make the best decision on that acre is what we got to look at. And that changes daily, right? And field conditions, market conditions, anything that has to do with that. We're, we're focusing really at every one acre at a time. So, so John, share with me a little bit more as you're working with farmers. Like I mentioned on your website here, you've got quite a few different avenues of ways that you work with these farmers. So are you helping them from everything from figuring out inputs to marketing the crop? Or what are the areas that you guys specialize in at Agtegra? You know, we we have a we have a large employee base here at Agtegra, and we have a lot of different talent sets and very 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 talented people. And we work with some of the best producers I think in the world. Um, so we just have to find the the right person or the right the right strategy on that farm. And it's it's not always me. Um, I learned a long time ago. If you try to do everything yourself, you're not going to be as successful as you are if you have a good team. And that's what we have here at Agtegra. And when we can incorporate other people on our team on a specific farm to help them, whether that's marketing grain or, you know, figuring out precision technology or maybe energy needs, whatever it can be, that's that's what good looks like for us. And that's what we try to do on, on all our farms. And I think you keep mentioning this, but talking about, looking at things by on an acre by acre basis or even a zone basis. I was looking at your website and I noticed you guys do MZB or or zone based data. Explain to us what that is. This is I mean this is honestly the first time I've heard it heard of zone based. I've heard of acre or bushel based, but I've never heard of zone based. So our MZB program is exactly like you explained it. It's a management zone based program. Um, what we're basically doing is we're looking at different images, different soil samples. We're looking at different soil types, and we're depicting parts of the field um, that match different yield goals and have different productivity. When we can do that, we're able to place inputs better. We're able to control our output a little bit better, our, our actual economic returns. Um, that MZB is proprietary to Integra. That is something that we've worked really hard at and had a lot of success, a lot of success with our farms and implementing that program and I guess to me it's encompassing all the things of precision egg and putting it into to one program and, and really focusing on that like I said that one acre at a time figuring out the best thing we can do I think we can try to grow 300 bushel corn but if it cost us 350 bushels to do it it probably wasn't worth it so it enable, enables us to focus really on that margin in the middle with strike profitability where we can find it in every different part of the field. And what system or platform do you guys use to support some of that data that you're collecting, I assume, throughout the growing season? We we have partnerships with with other companies that are helping us with cab connectivity to to connect data into our MZB program and that just our different economic um, thresholds that we're looking at as far as different fields and different break-evens. Um, anything that can be used, we're, we're, we're going to look at it, but it's really focused all around our, our MCB program on what we're doing to make final decisions that are actually delivered to the field, whether that's through 
one of our application machines or a planner or something that's maybe coming back through feedback through through a combine. So. And John, you mentioned you're covering mostly areas in North Dakota and South Dakota and a little bit of Nebraska. Why did you guys focus on those geographic areas and do you have plans to expand outside of those? So Integra's HQ would be in Aberdeen, South Dakota, so Brown County, South Dakota. And we'd really stretch our footprint mostly in in wide swaths in South Dakota. And then we do have locations all the way up to the Interstate 94 in North Dakota. And it just comes back to that cooperative experience where we've had successful local cooperatives that have either maybe merged in with Agtegra and, you know, acquired by Agtegra. And we just continue to build our business. And at the end of the day, our, our goal is just to serve our producers and where there's opportunities to do that and do that better, we're, we're always going to try to do better with that. So. For those listeners living in those areas where Agtegra touches, share with us a little bit more information about how they can get in touch with you if they'd like to inquire about your services. The best way to get in touch with, with Agtegra is probably find your local sales agronomist or find your local location and really start that conversation with those guys and we want to be proactive as we can too with, with reaching out to as many producers as we can and finding out if we're, we're a fit to work with on your guys' farms so um, our website's another great place where you can find a lot of contact information grain bids um, local prices services and products that we offer as well fantastic well john muskie of agtegra thank you so much for joining no thank you for having me i really appreciate it Well, again, a big thank you there to John. Interesting stuff that they're doing up there, kind of being a full service system, if you will, for producers up in that neck of the woods. Absolutely. It's great to hear. It's nice to find uh, businesses being successful in these challenging times. And I think a lot of agriculture, despite the headlines, we're managing to survive and to find folks that are thriving is exciting. Absolutely it is, but we're still thriving here at the Ag News Daily Podcast. You can catch up with us anytime. Check out some of our past episodes by heading to agnewsdaily.com. You can also interact with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Ashton's been taking that over for us, and she's been doing a fantastic job, so make sure you're following along or sending us those pictures if you're still out in the fields planting. We want to hear from you. With that, Mike, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.